If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. We really don't know the ways in which we are kind of fundamentally altering our world. And this is happening at these kinds of really radical timescales that are in some ways very hard to fathom and, and are colliding in all kinds of different directions. And so. The concept of petrotime was trying to grapple with the kind of geological aspect of plastic steep time and also in, in terms of thinking about the unknown ways in which plastic and, and its associated chemicals are affecting our bodies. Today we're speaking with Heather Davis, an assistant professor of culture and media at the New School in New York, whose work draws on feminist and queer theory to examine ecology, materiality, and contemporary art in the context of settler colonialism. Her most recent book, Plastic Matter, explores the transformation of geology, media, and bodies in light of plastics saturation. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a chemical engineer and then later a manager for DuPont for his entire life or his entire working life. And as a part of that work, he was involved in the development of all kinds of petrotextiles, so different synthetic fibers, and also in the development of the plastic milk bag, which is used all over the world, not so much in the United States, but in Canada, in South America, in India and elsewhere. And so plastic, in some sense, was always a part of my life in this kind of immediate way, um, the kind of stories of what it was like for him to participate in the development of this strange, mundane object that has proliferated around the world. But also, I think like everybody who was born around 
when I was born or, or a little bit earlier, and then of course, much definitely all the generations to come, we grew up in a world where you, plastic was really ubiquitous. And what I wanted to think through in the relationship to inheritance in particular was how the word inheritance is a designation of a certain kind of property relation. So within the English language, when we speak of inheritance, that's generally the first kind of connotation that comes to mind. Of course, there's intellectual inheritances, or there's genetic inheritances, or there's inheritance in in many other ways as well. But one of the primary ways in which we use that word is to really think about intergenerational transfers of wealth. And the reason why inheritance for me was so important in that context was both in thinking through what my grandfather's very kind of like stable, like middle class, upper middle class, what his life was then able to transmit to mine, right? So like what, how my own middle classness and and the stability in that was a function and part of his job at DuPont. And also the ways in which plastic in some senses kind of shores up a lot of these relations that work in the same manner as other property relations. So the ways in which intergenerational transfers of wealth often are used as mechanisms or the way that they function has been primarily to benefit folks like myself, so settlers of European heritage, white people in other words, um, and how it's, how that same kind of relationship of inheritance is often not the same for other folks. So I was really interested in, in how that kind of inheritance is manifested in an object like plastic, both in terms of my own immediate family story, but also in terms of the ways in which plastic really works to the benefit of some and the expense of others. And I felt that that description of inheritance drew attention to those qualities. Mm, Thank you so much for sharing this. I want to read a quote from you to lay the grounds for the rest of our conversation here. You share, emerging from techno-science and techno-culture, plastic matter shares a particular dissatisfaction with the world as it is, or in being in the present, attuned to its multiple nuances and contradictions, end quote. How would you elaborate on or trouble this type of techno-cultural, quote-unquote, futuristic, new making of the world thinking, or a rush to move on without taking ownership or responsibility? And how has it informed or even shaped the creation of the material that is plastic, which has, of course, become deeply entangled in modernity today? So maybe I'll start with the second part of your question first, which is how has plastic kind of contributed to this sort of utopian techno culture or techno-futurism. And one of the ways in which, I mean, there's lots of different ways in which one can approach this. And I think that the kind of utopian aspects of it are very real. And to me, to me, they are really important. And um, when you look back at the records of the molecular engineers who are involved in the creation of various kinds of plastics, you know, I had the chance to go to the Hagley archives, which is the archives, the official archives of, of DuPont, the company, you know, the ones, the, the archival materials that they want the public to see. What was really striking in, in those archives, I ran across a series of oral histories with various engineers who had worked on the development of different types of polymers polymers that we would classify as plastics, 
And what was really apparent in that was that there was a genuine excitement. Like genuinely people really believed that what they were doing was really making the world a better place. And there was a real like excitement and commitment to that vision, even when there might be indications that things weren't going as planned. For example, there's a quote in the book that talks about one of the engineers going back to, I believe it was Wilmington, but it could have been another another place where plastics were being developed. And going back to that town at the time, there was an overwhelming kind of powerful smell that was being emitted because of the runoff from the industry, from the manufacturing of plastics. And everyone understood it to be the smell of success. And I think that like the ways in which we think about something like this, so the ways in which we think of the smell of success as actually being the kind of off-gassing of various kind of pollutants, I don't think, you know, it might seem like an easily dismissed kind of vision, but I actually think that there is a real investment in that kind of a politic and people genuinely had this vision of being able to create this better world. And I know certainly when I talked to my grandfather when he was alive, he would say the same thing. He would talk about the kinds of chemical fertilizers, for example, that were also developed by DuPont and other companies or other, you know, or pesticides, even including things like DDT. And he would defend those products as being products that really made the world a lot better. And so I think that one of the investments in uh, techno-futurity is is a kind of genuine belief in the betterment of the world. And so I think in some sense, what we want to be careful about is the kinds of investments that are that are then happening. Not to say that any belief in the betterment of the world is wrong or or somehow misguided, but to really recognize how, what kinds of worlds are being built and at whose expense. And also the ways in which, of course, you know, we've seen in the history of the 20th century in particular, a real intensification of some of the underlying tenants that get built into colonial logics, including and especially the logic of progress as always the means of betterment. So that there's a way in which we can never be satisfied with things as they are. There has to be a kind of growth model for everything. And instead of reinvesting in, in methodologies of regeneration or cultivation or circular economies or strategies of, of really thinking through the kinds of processes of, of investment in a kind of circular manner, there's a real tendency towards this kind of rush to futurity. And I also think that this has deep roots in, in a longer colonial history that, that really is invested in that idea of progress and this kind of rush towards the future. And one of the points that was really influential to me in my thinking about plastic was a quote from Carl Paus White, who is a philosopher and a member of the Potawatomi Nation. And he talks about the ways in which how what we are currently living in is my ancestors' utopia and his ancestors' dystopia. And I think that that is a very poignant way of looking at things where we can look at the kinds of investments in techno-utopianism, the investments in this kind of rush for progress, the investments in the removal of ourselves from from what we may call nature, the kind of dislocation and dissociation of ourselves from other people, but also from 
the other beings that also inhabit the world. And all of these things are, are inherently a part of the kind of relations that plastic is producing in the world. And I think it's really an extension of, of this type of logic that has been with us for at least the last 500 years since the start of, of colonialism. And so I think that, you know, undoing these logics, undoing the logic of, of a kind of techno-futurity or a kind of not wanting to actually sit with what has happened. I think that part of part of that at this point is because people don't want to reckon with with our histories, right? There's a real, I think, a fear, but also a a real sense of avoidance or a sense of reactivity that really comes up when we want to actually have conversations about what what does it mean to for somebody like me to be living in these lands and to have an attachment to these lands that were fundamentally shaped through the projects of genocide and enslavement and the the massive land and air and atmosphere uh, and waterway transformations that accompanied those those two fundamental projects so so what does it mean to really address ourselves to those questions and I think that that's something that is very difficult to do and I think also the ways in which techno-futurity gets produced is that it gets it produced as somehow removed from from those histories even though all of the kinds of investments in techno-utopianism continue to reinvest in the same kinds of extractive logics that are inherently a part of colonialism in the first place. And if that sounds really heady, maybe just to give like one kind of concrete example is the ways in which folks are getting super so excited about electric vehicles. And of course, obviously we need to, we need to move away from combustion engines. That's very, very obvious. And of course, in a place like the United States, we immediately confront the, the problems of the infrastructure of the roadways. But but what becomes very apparent in just in rather than dealing with the infrastructures of the roadways and really thinking through why there isn't better mass transit systems, instead there's this there's just a kind of shift to electric vehicles as if that will solve our problems. But of course, we're already seeing the ways in which the same kinds of extractive projects that that a part of the fossil fuel industry are now just shifting to rare earth minerals. So in the Atacama Desert in Chile, for example, or in the the region of the of the Ring of Fire in northern Ontario. And these are places that are now in, in heavy contestation between drivers of industry and, and a kind of desire for a better future, but at the same time are coming up against a lot of indigenous resistance because the idea of what that better future is, is very different for different people. Mm. I was going to ask you if you see this type of techno-solutionism stemming from techno-culture showing up in the ways that people are rushing to address the climate crisis today, and you just answered that. So I appreciate that. And I do think it speaks to the importance of going beyond making substitutions to digging deeper and sort of shifting the underlying foundations. And I also think it's really perceptive, everything you said in that there's this sort of delicate reality that for the most part, I believe, those who do consider themselves techno-solutionists, I believe, have good intentions of genuinely wanting to improve the world and addressing our varied crises and improving people's life quality and so forth. So I do think there is that shared underlying intention for the most part. But of course, our understandings and visions of what advancement or improvement or betterment mean and what it will take will 
differ drastically based on our differing worldviews, knowledges, experiences, our understandings of history, and so on. So I think with this understanding, just approaching these conversations with people rather than with this sort of fight mentality, just holding an empathy and an openness to engage, hopefully will lead to more productive understandings of our shared values and intentions and what we can do going forward to address the same crises that most people are worried about and do want to address. And a beautiful and perhaps uneasy question that guides your work is, what might it mean to take these enmeshments with objects like plastic that we may find repulsive and want to reject, not as what we must distance ourselves from, but instead something that we might grow to be closer and even more intimate with? And I think especially when it comes to plastic pollution, there is an understandable desire to distance ourselves from this and to find plastics and the fossil fuels that they're made from to be dirty, unlovable, and disgusting and sort of degrade their presence in the world. But your invitation to see plastics and oil as grand kin leads for me to this question instead of what could it mean to not have a repulsive reaction to plastic and fossil fuels, but even to sort of reverence and respect for what they quite literally are and can represent for us. So on this note, I would love if you could talk more about this perspective shift that disturbs many of our presumed boundaries in our lives and how it might lead us to relate to the various fossil fuel related crises today in different ways. Yeah, thanks so much, Naif. Yeah, I really, really agree with your assessment that you articulated before. So I think that For me, the shift arose out of two different ways of thinking. The first being that a lot of the logics of plastic waste in terms of how it is currently dealt with in the world is precisely one where for those of us who live in countries with the, with infrastructure to be able to deal with plastic waste, we often push that plastic waste to to other countries to deal with. So this is part of the kind of logics of waste colonialism more broadly, where, for example, um, a lot of our, our the plastic waste from the United States at the moment ends up in places like Indonesia. And so where their folks are forced to live with plastic waste, regardless of whether what their orientation to it is, especially folks who are poorer, or who don't have access to the same kinds of class resources. And so I think that for me, this is a really kind of untenable thing that, that if we are benefiting from the use of plastic, then I think we also need to live with our own waste. And that for me is like a really fundamental ethic in thinking about how to deal with plastic, plastic pollution and its toxicity. And this also extends into thinking about plastic production and where plastic production is concentrated. So plastic production is often concentrated in communities that are are low income or communities of color, in particular black and indigenous communities, again, in, in the kind of context of Canada and the United States. And again, I find this, I find this sort of intolerable in the sense that, that if we, again, if we're going to be benefiting from the use of these materials, if they are enhancing our lives, you know, providing the means, for example, for us to be able to have this conversation over the internet, 
at the moment, which is, you know, delightful and super important, then I think we also need to really deal with the consequences of that. So the kind of pushing this away to somewhere else, I think, is also a part of these same kinds of extractive and colonial logics that I was highlighting earlier. And in terms of then kind of shifting the focus to thinking about um, plastics and fossil fuels as a kind of grand can, a lot of that thinking both grew out of my deep commitments to queer theory and to queer life and to um, sort of thinking about how family formations and the formation of obligations and relations might be different than a kind of heteronormative setup. But I've also, I'm really indebted to uh, many Indigenous scholars, and in particular, to Zoe Todd and Michelle Murphy, who are both uh, Métis, and who both articulate this kind of relationship to thinking through these relations, and also to the scholar Vanessa Agar-Jones, who is a, a Black Caribbean scholar living in the United States. And so thinking about how relations might be troubled, like what would it mean to actually kind of take up plastic as a kind of grandkin? And this in part was also spurred on by the knowledge that I read an article at the very beginning of the research that I was doing, and I was also in conversation with the artist Panar Yoldash, who made this beautiful project called Ecosystem of Excess. And both the article and her work are dealing with the fact that there's now this kind of plastosphere. So all of these, at the time when the article first came out, I believe in 2013, there was a kind of first knowledge of the fact that on these tiny pieces of plastic that were floating in the oceans, there was all of this microbial life. So communities of microbes that were living on these tiny pieces of plastic that were floating around. And then the thought was, what happens if creatures evolve, as Yoldish has proposed, creatures evolve to be able to process all of this plastic. And what has actually happened in the world, as we've seen, is that there's actually more and more organisms that can, we think, <laughs> digest the plastic. Now, there seems to be a lot of debate over, over whether this is being successfully digested or whether it's just passing through organisms' digestive tracts. But, you know, in my house, I managed to go through an entire life cycle of mealworms who were living off of a little bit of wheat bran and mostly styrofoam. So I think they're probably getting something out of it, which is really incredible. And so I think that, you know, instead of kind of running away in fear for, from something like that, I think that there is an invitation then to ask after the kinds of evolutions that are being pushed perhaps totally unintentionally. And this is in no way, shape, or form, both of these things are in no way, shape, or form an argument for the kind of vast proliferation of plastics that are happening or the unimpeded expansion of the fossil fuel industry more, more at large. I definitely would like to see both of those things uh, radically curbed. But I do think that there is the question again of like, if we are going to be producing this, if we have produced these things, if we have benefited from them, then we need to be able to take responsibility for them. And I think that that shift in orientation is one that to me seems far more ethical than putting our waste or or the kinds of dis, you know displacing the kind of longer term processes of what it means to be living in a world so saturated with plastic. But I also really wanted to push how we might think about plastics and fossil fuels 
in relationship to, you know, if we really took seriously that they were some kind of ancestor that had been unearthed without the permission, I think that brings up two questions, like, immediately, one is, well, maybe we need to figure out ways of, you know, like, would we unearth our ancestors? Like, would we just unearth them in the ways that we've been doing in this kind of very crass way? Like, maybe that's not the way to go about digging things up from the earth. And maybe it leads to the question of whether we should be digging things up from the earth at all. But but if we are going to be engaging in those processes, maybe that needs to be much more careful. And then in terms of plastics, you know, one of the one of the other things that I read at the very beginning of my research on this book, just sort of by chance, was a novel by Doris Lessing. And in the novel, she describes how it's kind of a post-apocalyptic novel and and she describes how plastic has become this incredible resource. And, you know, it really foreshadows some of the things that are currently occurring, which is the, the proposition to use garbage dumps as mines for the future, because there are so many <laughs> resources in there. There's so much metal, there's so much oil in the form of plastic, there's all of this stuff that is actually available to us but that also like what would happen if plastic because it was a grand kin became one of the most valuable materials on earth right what if what if it's actual kind of monetary value if we're going to still operate under those terms what would it mean if if it was incredibly expensive or if it was incredibly valued like if it was if, it, if we really really thought about what our relations to it should be and when we should when we should be using it and I think that those are the types of questions that I want to provoke in people in addition to to maybe some of the more philosophical questions about what is our entanglement and what are our obligations um, to the immediate beings that we share the world with Hmm. and this also brings up the general idea that extraction tends to be easier and more cost-effective and more profitable than salvaging used and dumped materials. So it also leads me to consider how the profit motive, given our current economic system, is driving certain forms of extractive technologies and preventing certain forms of techno-solutionism from even being made or being prioritized. So there's a lot more to think about here and learn from what you just shared. And I want to come back to the microbial life piece shortly, but something that you've done in your work is to trace the geological relations of plastic through what is called the plastiglomerate. And this was my first time hearing this term, and I would assume the same for a lot of our listeners as well. So I would love if you could expand on what this is and also how it relates to what you call petrotime. Yeah, so the plastiglomerate is a term that was used to describe this new kind of, um, it's not exactly a rock, it's more, more like a rock-like substance. And the, the naming of this rock-like substance happened with three people, um, Charles Moore, who is a, a well-known kind of plastic activist and captain of a ship. Patricia Corcoran, who is a geologist, and Kelly Jasbeck, who is an artist. And the three of them went to a particular beach, Camillo Beach in Hawaii, where they knew that these plastiglomerates were you know, rapidly proliferating across the beach. And they knew this because locals had known this for a very long time. They'd been seeing it happening for a really long time. So they're certainly not the, the first people to notice this. 
but they were they were the first people to to give it a name and then to use by way of giving it this this name of the plastiglomerate to to use that to bring wider attention to this phenomenon. So basically what's happening is that as people are probably aware, there's five gyres in the oceans, which just means like a kind of series of currents that push things around in a, in particular kinds of ways or particular directions. And Hawaii happens to be situated and in particular this this one beach happens to be situated in a way where it's uh, close to the North Pacific gyre and and a lot of the material for you know ever since it existed and ever since the kind of gyres moved that way everything in the in the ocean that was sort of floating would just kind of turn up eventually on this particular beach or everything sort of that was caught in that in that particular current I should say not everything in the entire ocean but everything caught up in that particular current would end up on this ocean. So in the past, you know, you'd have driftwood, you would have, you know, if there were shipwrecks, um, you know, anything like this would turn up, would turn up there on that beach. And of course, you know, now the oceans are full of plastic, as I think we're all aware. And as a result of this, there's a huge amount of plastic on Camillo Beach. Um, I, you know, I've never been there myself, but from the descriptions and from talking to Kelly and Patricia about their experiences there, it really sounds like just kind of it almost the descriptions make it sound like it, it feels almost like you're you're walking more like in a, a garbage dump than, than on a on what you would imagine a beach looks like. And and a plastic agglomerate is basically like a rock like thing where it's composed of melted plastic along with all kinds of other debris. So so it, that can be rocks or sticks or, or other types of things, but it kind of forms into this thing that looks essentially like a rock. So if you were to look at it from a distance, you might think it's a rock or there's a lot of rocks kind of mixed into it. So looking at it from certain angles, you again, you, would, you might think it's just a rock, but it's this kind of conglomeration of rock and hardened plastic and then there's also the same kind of phenomenon but stuck in the rocks there where you can't actually remove it as a kind of individual object but but it's stuck in the in the landscape there and this really highlights the ways in which plastic has these incredibly long time frames and I think that one of the things that really captured people's imaginations when they first heard about the plastic agglomerate, it got a fair amount of press when it was first named. And one of the reasons I think for this is because it really highlights the ways in which geology itself is now being composed in part through plastics. And I think that many of us have a real kind of repulsion to, to that news or it's it's difficult news to sort of accept. It feels like we should really be able to separate the natural from the synthetic, that those kinds of things should not be existing in these pristine, beautiful beaches. But I think that what it really highlights is is the fact that the plastic is now so incredibly ubiquitous that it can't be it can't be taken out or removed. It is in fact a part of geology at this point in time. Mm. And what that leads me to then consider is what are the kinds of time frames of plastic? You know, how do we think with a material that has such an unknown existence, right? It's only plastic, you know, as a primarily petrochemical based material has only been around for just a little over a hundred years. And so that's a very short period of time that it's existed for. And 
when people say that the plastic is going to exist for, you know, 10,000 years or 100,000 years or, you know, 1,000 years or whatever they say, it's either because people have done a lot of experiments in labs where they've, you know, put the material under all kinds of different stresses and exposed it to solar ra to radiation and, you know, all of this kind of stuff to see whether and how it breaks down. Or, you know, the other pathway is what we're already seeing, which is, you know, about all of these organisms that can successfully digest plastics, make it make it turn back into its component part, its molecular component parts, basically turning it into something else altogether. But of course, that that happens at a much slower rate if it's a rock that that is either, you know, glued to a surface or or rocks that are that are kind of moving around in the world. And so I think it, it really, I think it really is a reminder to think about the kind of deep time of plastic, the fact that the plastic emerges from this incredibly long history, the history of the production of fossil fuels in the first place. So all of the organisms, the, the plants and the mostly single-celled organisms, but you know, a few, few multi multicellular beings that went into the production of fossil fuels in the first place that whose bodies were squished in such a particular kind of way that, that this is after hundreds of thousands of years, this is what happened. And then this very unknown future and, and the ways in which we kind of interact with plastic is it's such a mundane material and one that we kind of interact with on a daily basis. And so I think it's, it's really easy to lose sight of, of the kind of radically colliding timescales of plastic and petrotime. And I think that one of, for me, one of the other really startling things that, again, I learned through Michelle Murphy's work was the ways in which plastic and other kinds of petrochemical toxins have this kind of latent aspect to them. So, so if you are exposed, if you're somebody who has ovaries, for example, and you are exposed to particular kinds of toxins, those taught like the effects of that exposure might not show up for two generations into the future if you give birth and the person who you birth also gives birth and that to me was a really mind-boggling thing so you know we really don't know the ways in which we are kind of fundamentally altering our world and this is happening at these kinds of really radical time scales that are in some ways very hard to fathom and and are colliding in all kinds of different directions and so the concept of petrotime was trying to grapple with the kind of geological aspect of plastics deep time and also in in terms of thinking about the unknown ways in which plastic and, and its associated chemicals are affecting our bodies. Mm. And as you mentioned, the idea of the plastic glomerate also troubles a neat distinction between the natural and the synthetic. And I want to pick this apart further because the official definition of, quote, nature is basically all life other than humans and what humans create. And I know a lot of decolonial thinkers reject that sort of presumed separation between humans and the more than human world. And I'm also aware that most indigenous languages do not even have a word for nature, just the earth or the world. And implicit to rejecting the idea of nature or natural as being all that is not human is this question of what synthetic would even mean if it also, by definition, cannot be considered natural. And I know you've explored some of these themes as you share. Plastic matter speaks to this paradoxical relation, the ways in which plastics are impressed with an attempt to violently cleave the world in two 
while also exposing how nature and culture can never be separated, end quote. So how have you thought through your understanding of synthetic and natural while at the same time recognizing that a worldview and perspective of embodiment and entanglement is part of what is necessary to heal our relationships with ourselves and the planet? Yeah, that was a really difficult thing to think through, actually. And I feel mm -hmm. like I'm still, I'm still thinking through it because on the one hand, I think it is it is useful to be able to have specific kinds of concepts that, that can do the work of showing where something like something that is derived from fossil fuels and objects like plastic might have a different type of a relationship to the world around them than say a, a desk made of wood. And I, I use a quote by by Robin Wall Kimmer, who also points this out, where she, you know, she's talking about sort of giving thanks and really thinking through the relations of various um, types of objects in her house and the things that she's using on a daily basis. And then she gets to, to something plastic, and she doesn't know what to do with it, right? Like she's like, well, what, what do I, what do I sort of give thanks to in this? Object, And I think that that is what the troubling thing about something like plastic is. And so in the book, I try to develop this concept called synthetic universality, which is that it's not that I want to say that there are there is a clear cut division between the synthetic and the natural. And I completely agree with scholars, anti-colonial feminist, indigenous scholars who have done so much work to really bring our attention to the ways in which this divide between nature and culture that was developed primarily through kind of Western imperialistic model, that that divide is, is both fundamentally false, I would say, um, risking <laughs> risking a kind of ontological claim about the world. But, uh, but I think that, you know, we can really see the ways in which things move in and out of the body, right, whether we like it or not. And, and that the things that humans make are, are maybe, maybe at a different scale than than many other creatures. But you know, we're still not at the scale of cyanobacteria, for example, as, as somebody like Lynn Margulis would remind us, right, that like, that cyanobacteria fundamentally changed the atmosphere of the planet long before humans knew anything about or were affecting the climate on the on a kind of planetary scale. So we're not the first species to do something like this. But so I, and I think that those things are really good reminders for the ways in which we need to rethink that kind of fundamental presupposition that, that nature and culture are separate because of, especially because of the harm that is obviously caused to, to people and other beings. But I think that at the same time, it's it was really necessary for me to be able to name what is it about a material like like plastic, and I'm I'm sure it's not the only one, but it's the one that I've been thinking with. What is it about something like that 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 really invites a kind of dissociation from the earth? And so the way that I was trying to think it through was was through this kind of fundamental process of alienation. Like one of the things I you know I, I say to people when when trying to think this through is that like you know if if you were to sort of say to somebody, oh well, I'm going to buy local plastic from now on. 
it seems laughable, right? Like it's like, it doesn't make sense, right? (laughs) You're not like, oh, I'm going to go to the farmer's market and buy local plastic. Like, what does that even mean, right? Like you have your own well in your backyard and and, and you you develop, you manufacture plastic there or, you know, I mean, there are people who are actually doing kind of really interesting experiments with, with home recycling of various plastics and producing new objects through various kinds of, uh, maker spaces and things like that, which I think is super interesting. But mostly that it's it's a concept that makes absolutely no sense. And and that's because of the ways in which the petrochemical industry it has so many like layers of kind of capitalist alienation built into it um, where we don't see where plastics come from and we don't understand where they come from. There is no relationship to their actual home. And so despite the fact that this isn't going to be the case, this isn't really the case, like once once plastics start start to break down, they become part of whatever ecosystem they're in and they have very specific effects on those specific and local ecosystems. And similarly, you know, we can't universalize to say that like all of our interactions with plastics are the same because some of us live closer to the production of plastics facilities and some of us live further away. And depending on where you live, that's going to have really different effects on, on your overall health. But, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to hold on to this kind of quality of alienation or to really draw this out. And, the ways in which I was thinking about that is through this phenomenon of universality so that pl- plastic proposes itself almost to be universal, to be to be fundamentally not of the earth and to not kind of situate ourselves in the earth. It's very difficult to kind of situate oneself in the earth through plastic. And I think that there's, so there, there's a certain kind of intention behind that material that I think influences um, its material expression. Yeah. And I just love how this conversation really challenges a lot of what I had presumed to be the truth or close to it. And it's just, there are no right answers. And I just, I just appreciate being able to think through these things with you. And there's a troubling paradox in regards to the impact of plastic pollution, which is how various plastics and petrochemicals have known to be toxic for the reproductive health of various species of life, including humans. And at the same time, as you shared earlier, there have been new forms of life made possible that have arisen from and proliferated from the widespread presence of plastics. And I think this recognition is a troubling one for me to sit with because given that I resonate with the invitation to expand my perspectives of kinship and of selfhood, it makes me wonder if the judgments of good or bad are necessarily kind of self and human centered or at best centered on other beings like me or that are that my thriving and our thriving more immediately depend on rather than, for example, ones that could be pathogenic for us. Because if we had a capacity to really expand our self-interest to completely decenter human-centric judgments, then, I don't know, it kind of rips the rug out from underneath completely and provokes this question of whether good or bad is just a subjective judgment, given that a constant reconfiguration of the earth is the only constant that we both inherit and play active roles in reshaping and co-creating. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great, it's, it's like, that's the, that's definitely a paradox that I have sat with for a really long time. And I think like, for me, I think it's like, that's where politics comes in, right? Like, that's why plastic is always, to me, a political material. And, and a lot of these kind of material discussions are, 
are always political because I think it's also okay to be in favor of certain worlds. And I think that it's okay to want to favor particular worlds. Like, like if, you know, climate change, for example, is producing all kinds of new life forms and different, you know, proliferations of various kinds of life forms, you know, ticks are doing really well in the, in the Northeast where I live um, deer ticks and that's great news if you're a deer tick and it's less good news if you're a deer or if you're a person who might get Lyme disease or you know all of these kinds of things and so I think it's okay to also sort of like say that you are on the side of certain worlds and not on the side of others and then you know recognizing that that decision does actually mean that there that it means maybe the reduction of the life world of uh, deer ticks, for example, right? And I also think that, like, yeah, so, like, I think that making those political decisions is actually totally okay and, in fact, really necessary. And one of the other things that has long been part of my thinking is a kind of belief in ecological diversity. And and if we really fundamentally believe in ecological diversity as a good, right, if, if that is the kind of political orientation that we want to take, then, yeah, the proliferation of plastic, the proliferation of fossil fuels is not leading to the, in that direction, right? It's leading to um, monocultures, it's leading to the squashing or the, the, the contamination of particular forms of life. But but that doesn't mean that it's a it's a complete reduction of all life forms. Um, there's actually all kinds of life forms that are thriving under the current kind of colonial capitalist conditions. And it's not that one has to, you know, come out against jellyfish or something, but but I think that it's also okay to be in favor of more biodiversity. And yeah, I don't know if we have to if we have to say like we I think that there are ways in which we can build like political communities around agreements around those those kinds of decisions even even at the same time while holding while holding the knowledge that no matter what kinds of futures are going to exist they're going to change that that the earth has been through you know such vast changes in in its history and, and will continue to go through incredibly vast changes which have probably always included the either total morphing into a complete other species or, or the eradication of humans. And that's always been the case. And I think that that's, that's, that's fine. It's fine to kind of hold that. But for while we're here, I think that there's a question of, of who are we obligated to? Who do we have responsibilities to? And what kinds of worlds do we want to see proliferate? And, and those ones, I think, for me, are always political questions. Mm. And, you know, our podcast description includes exploring our paths to collective healing as a North Star. But I think this entire conversation and what we just discussed here, including this idea of the constant reconfiguration and transformation of the earth, also makes me wonder whether our understanding of collective health needs to constantly evolve as the makeup of Earth's body continues to transform. Like what what should we even use as a measurement of our planetary health? Is it stability or even non-change? Because a civilization stuck in its ways tends to see the troubles of climate change as an illness rather than a call to change? Is it the creation of new life, the diversity of life forms? Is it the net and collective quality of life, even though inherent to life is this messy and unpure reality that the birth and 
growth of new life always grows off of the taking and consumption of other beings. So just a lot of nuance and messy questions that I know I'll continue to sit with. And for now, though, one of the biggest takeaways for me, especially from looking at the crisis and reality that is plastic pollution and entanglement in modernity, is that all that we've already inherited and all that we've ourselves co-created cannot simply be undone or canceled. And in fact, maybe a desire to rush into hitting delete in order to exit cleanly would also continue that pattern of having the urge to run away from the messiness of it all. And as you've been working on the challenging task of thinking with and through plastic, I wonder what you think this grandkin might teach us in terms of undoing the mess or recomposing our relations as parts of Earth. You know, it's funny in the in the book, you I'm sure you notice there's no real conclusion, right? There's just like three different kind of stories that I tell at the end, and that was in part because it was difficult for me to sort of like come up with with a conclusion. And in some ways, even the kind of possibility of thinking about plastic or oil as grandkin, I don't necessarily mean that as redemptive. I don't necessarily mean that this is like there's this story of colonialism embedded into plastics or story of techno-utopianism embedded into plastics and then because it's birthing new organisms this is somehow you know the, the redemptive part of plastics it, that's not really the story that I want to tell the story that I want to tell is I think maybe much closer to what you just described which is like a series of paradoxes that we're left with but I think that maybe some of the lessons that come from those paradoxes like if we're willing to kind of sit with them is is to maybe have a deeper appreciation you know one of the things that I that I really love about the scholarly traditions that I've been had the privilege to to be embedded in and to have conversations with with other just really important scholars is is the ways in which you know like folks like Donna Haraway for example have really emphasized how what we think matters and it doesn't matter in the sense of I mean, it matters in the sense of it is important, but also in the sense that it literally brings in into being material worlds. And so I think that with plastic, what I was trying to illustrate was in part that. And so I want us to maybe be a bit more careful about what concepts, what ideas we're investing in so that we can also produce material worlds that we feel comfortable and safe in. But maybe as you indicate, maybe not like so, like maybe a little bit uncomfortable because I, I think that there's also a part of me that, that doesn't totally trust. Or maybe just, you know, because of my background as a, as a white middle class person, I'm always a little bit, I always get a little bit uncomfortable with too much comfort. It feels like yeah. something has probably, probably gone wrong. So, you know, some something that's maybe challenging in there, but, uh, but it, that is not like fundamentally kind of like, harmful on a, on a really massive scale you know i think that part of part of living with and on the earth is that you know we can't we can't escape we can't escape forms of harm we're not going to be able to escape toxicity we can't escape pathogens you know all of these things are just part of the world that we live in and i think that that's actually perfectly okay it's just that we don't want to be amplifying those those systems and i think that that learning to be more more careful about about that i think is is what what i really hope for. Yeah, and I can see this conversation being maybe uncomfortable in the sense that I think we have a tendency to want to translate, you know, like 
this conversation into okay, what does this actually what do these philosophical shifts and explorations actually mean for how we can get out of this mess right now? And so maybe one of the key messages is that it's not so much about getting out of the mess, but about how we sit with it all and how we remake this mess and reconfigure life as parts of Earth to something that based on people's different visions and politics would be more aligned with how we would like to see collective healing. That's kind of what I'm sitting with. And I know it's uneasy for me to, I tend to have more questions than answers for the most part too, although it is uncomfortable and I want to embrace that discomfort. But as we're wrapping up our main conversation here, I wonder what other things you've been thinking through that you might want to share here, any cost to action or just more inquiry that you want our listeners to walk away with? I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the real sort of thing that has underlined the kind of motivations for the book has really been about our practice to materiality in general. So, you know, I took, I took plastic as the, as the example for this book, but I think that I think it would be it would be interesting to do similar analysis of of different types of materials that we that we interact with on a daily basis and there's lots of artists and scholars and activists who are doing that work all the time and I think that that's really interesting and necessary work to to really kind of rethink our relations to materiality in terms of calls to action definitely I'm always a huge supporter of any kind of extended producer responsibility bills that anybody is trying to put forward, maybe not all of them, but uh, but the ones that really have some teeth in, in them, those are really important in terms of rethinking who uh, who is paying for the costs of plastic pollution so that it's the companies who are producing the plastics in the first place. It helps to work against the kind of profit motive that you were bringing up earlier. Also, like the support for, for keep it in the ground campaigns or pipeline blockades or, you know, these kinds of things we really, I think we really need to much more radically shift away from fossil fuels. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publication you follow? So it's not a book, but it is an article, which is Ursula K. Le Guin's Is Gender Necessary Redux, which is a kind of maybe a strange thing to bring into this conversation. But one of the things I really love about that article is that she argues with herself. So, so she changes her mind twice in the article, one <laughs> where she like literally puts in quotes and and highlights the places where she disagrees with herself and I think that that kind of an ethic in public you know going back to something that you've written or published and and rewriting it I think is is such an important way of being in the world like the ability to say 
I was wrong. I'm not, I actually would, would do it this way. And I know also you only said one, but the other one that really pops into my head is um, Robin, Robin Will Kimmerer's The Service Berry and Economy of Abundance, because it's just such a beautiful provocation for thinking through the ways in which um, the models of scarcity and abundance are so deeply ingrained in us and, and how to offer a different, a different understanding of our relations to the world. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? So I love hiking and camping and, you know, all those things. It really, really helps me stay grounded. But maybe just like a quicker motto is is to really try to remember to practice gratitude for, for everything that I have and to do that practice of, of trying to remember where things come from and who made them and who brought them to me and all the kind of work and labor um, from both humans and other than human beings that go into those things. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment or one of it? So I think like in academic kind of circles, I think the the rise of uh, Black ecologies and the conversations between Black and Indigenous studies, I think have been incredibly important. I think that if we're really thinking through the kind of structures of settler colonialism, then the kind of integration of the foregrounding and, and integration of those two fields, I think is really the ways in which how we're going to get to something else. And also the kind of rise of awareness of climate colonialism, the fact that this is now something that multiple people talk about. It's a much more kind of general phenomenon to understand the connections between colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, and, and climate change. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more about Heather's work, you can head to heathermdavis.com, and we will, of course, have other resources and references from this conversation linked in our show notes as well. Heather, what a really thought-provoking conversation for me here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. For now, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? I just really um, thank you for your incredibly thoughtful questions and really beautiful elaborations of an engagement with these really kind of difficult paradoxical situations that we find ourselves in. I know it's not always easy to sit in that space of uncomfortableness, but I think I think it really is the best way through. So so cultivating practices that allow us to do that I think are are really so helpful. So I really thank you so much. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is The Witness by Rowan Rain. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 